today's scripture reading is from Matthew 26, verses 1 to 13. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus and secretly kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Today, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In a crowd of 20,000 people, I found a man willing to talk with me. I wanted to talk with as many as I could while I was there. We were standing on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. I actually have a picture of that. A Bible college student and a throng of atheists brought together for their reason rally. While atheist celebrities mounted the stage to throw red meat to the crowds, and Christian protesters yelled on bullhorns that all the atheists were going to hell. I was part of a Christian college organization sent to have some friendly, civil conversations with the people there about God. This man was willing to talk. He knew what I was about. And so reaching back among all of his objections to the faith, he grabbed what he thought would do me in good. Why didn't Jesus tell us how to make penicillin? Why didn't Jesus tell us how to make penicillin? He was locked onto the question like a pit bull. If he was trying to surprise me, he succeeded, but I was mostly puzzled. It seemed like he was missing the point, because penicillin might temporarily save you so you could live a few more years, but you'd eventually die all the same. Did he miss that Jesus came to cure death altogether? Did he miss that God came in the flesh so that we could put all our sorrows behind us once 
and for all. He seemed to miss it. Our conversation didn't get very far, and we went our separate ways amidst the crowd. Now, I wouldn't judge him too harshly, because I think it's rather easy for us as human beings to miss the point. Our passage today indicates that the disciples missed the point easily enough, even while they walked with Jesus, and he spoke his words into their very ears. Looking at Matthew chapter 26, we're at a point of transition here. And we're clued in on that by the fact that Matthew says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, this is a phrase that has occurred several times earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. It's indicating that one section has closed and another section is opening up. Now, the section that is just closed, he's been talking about the coming of God's kingdom. He's been talking about how his disciples should be anticipating that they'll have to face some suffering, that they'll have to be ready to hold out and be faithful in anticipating his coming and not looking to false messiahs, that they'd be, have to be ready to endure and remain faithful servants to the task that he's called them. That's why he uses all these parables about the virgins and the stewards and the master's household. And now, he's here pointing us to what everything is driving towards. It's all driving towards the cross. It's easy for us to forget as we've been going through these chapters that everything that's been happening here has been happening in the space of a week. The rest of Matthew, you know, it's covering about three years of Jesus' life, so it, it tends to be a little bit more broad, jumps greater spans of time, but at the end of the Gospel, it slows way down because it's driving its focus towards his death and his, his resurrection to follow. And here, he reminds his disciples of this. In verse 2, he says, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And so he's explicitly turning his disciples' attention to the fact that, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And it's rather striking that Jesus knows this, and yet he's not running away. He's not like, hey, I'm heading out to Galilee, to Nazareth, to get away from here because they're going to try to crucify me. No. He stays right where he is. The way, in the way in which he has come to know that he's going to be crucified isn't because he's got like secret agents in the courts of the temple that are informing him, hey, they're hatching plans to kill you. It's because he understands and knows that this has been the plan from the beginning. In Psalm 2, we have the psalmist writing words that anticipate the coming Messiah. And one of the things that's interesting is it says in verse 2 of Psalm 2, it says, the kings of the earth rise up 
and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what's playing out here. Jesus knows that the rulers and powers of this world are conspiring to kill him. And yet, God and all his sovereignty and wisdom is bringing this all together in order to work out our salvation. And so he's not running away. It's interesting because even as Jesus is telling his disciples this, these leaders are in fact spinning their murderous web. Jesus was a problem for the Jewish religious elites. And some days earlier, after Jesus had raised Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary from the dead, after him, he raised Lazarus from the dead, it caused quite a stir amongst the religious leaders. So you look to the Gospel of John, John 11, verses 47 through 15, you jump down to verse 53, we get a clue as to why they were so bothered by his activities. John records, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The reason that's, that the, these leaders say they're concerned about Jesus is because they believe that he's a threat to national security. He's rousing the people up. He's rallying them up with all these miracles and all these things he's saying. They think that he's the Messiah. And the popular notion of the Messiah at that time was that this Messiah, which is just a word for the, the Hebrew word for anointed one, this king, this king was going to emerge who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Pretty radical stuff. There would be no more Roman rule in the land of Israel. And so you could imagine that if the Roman authorities learned about this, they would be displeased and decide to take away everything, the very little bit that the Jews could enjoy with their temple and their positions and all of this. So we have a gloss of patriotic concern here. Caiaphas says it's better that one man die than the whole nation. And ironically, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what plays out. And it, it's true. It, it's to our benefit that Christ dies for our sake. But there's some personal interest here as well. They didn't want to lose what little authority and status they enjoyed. And so they huddled together. This threat that Jesus posed was a challenge to eliminate because the people loved him. And 
As they're in Jerusalem, there's enormous crowds there for the celebration of Passover. If they manage to kill Jesus, it could result in a riot. And the last time there was a riot, about 34 years previous, during the time of Passover, Herod Archelaus sent Roman soldiers in and killed 3,000 men. So they're really afraid that if they make this, if they do this in a messy kind of way, it could end up in real disaster for their people, and it would probably look bad on them. So imagine you're in the circle with them. It's kind of an odd position to be in. What would you suggest? Well, if you had a logical mind, you'd conclude you wouldn't want to do this during the festival. You'd have to wait. You couldn't possibly do it now. It's interesting that that's what they figured, because that's not what would happen. Judas would give them options. Their plan would have divorced Jesus from the Passover sacrifice, but God's plan would preserve the clear connection, revealing Jesus as the true Passover sacrifice. As Matthew is recording this in his Gospel, it seems that his mind is taken back to a dinner that the Apostle John says happened four days earlier. His mind goes there because Jesus' approaching death took center stage at that meal. So we look at verses 6 through 13 where this story is told. Jesus and his disciples are in Bethany, which is just two miles removed from the city of Jerusalem. And you might recall that Jesus actually is spending his nights in Bethany, and he just goes into Jerusalem by day, and then he goes back out to Bethany afterwards. So it's a back and forth sort of thing. And on this occasion, he is eating in the home of a man named Simon the leper. And the reasonable thing to assume here is that Simon is actually no longer a leper, because if he was still a leper, you wouldn't want to have a dinner with the guy, because you might contract leprosy. But he's become known as Simon the leper, probably because he suffered leprosy for a really long time. But things changed for him when he met Jesus. It's reasonable to assume that Jesus had healed this man So he's still called Simon the leper, but kind of ironically because he's no longer leprous. And so it points to the fact of who Jesus is, that he is this promised Messiah, that he is God incarnate. They're gathered around this table, sharing in a meal, breaking bread, probably talking about the things that have gone on during the day in Jerusalem. And then something surprising happens. A woman enters the room with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, we're told that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And I think this kind of helps explain what comes next. It helps explain the response that the disciples have. Because the disciples are not only shocked 
They're seething with frustration that Mary was doing this. We can imagine them looking at each other, rolling their eyes and sighing before they maybe start murmuring to each other. They're not so much upset that she's anointing Jesus. That, that was often customary to anoint someone with oil when you had a guest of honor. But what's upsetting them is, is that she's using this expensive oil. John says that it's a pint of, of pure nard. And so this could have been something that was imported, maybe from India. This kind of perfume, they didn't have mass perfume factories. It took a long time to get these from the roots that they made these perfumes from. In Mark 14, it says that this perfume was worth a year's wages. So imagine your year's wages captured in a bottle of perfume and that bottle being poured out over Jesus in mere seconds. John tells us that among all the disciples, Judas Iscariot seems to have been the primary instigator. In John 12, verses 4 through 6, John records, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, the rest of the disciples didn't know this at the time. They didn't know that Judas was stealing from the money bag. Maybe one or two of them had a suspicion about it. But they found Judas's objection very reasonable, at the least. Why would you just waste this perfume on Jesus? Why not help the poor? And so they begin scolding Mary harshly. You can imagine how terrible it was for her. We can assume that probably everyone around the table was a man. Seems pretty reasonable. So she's entering into this room full of men. And they begin all saying how she's a fool. How could she be so careless and thoughtless to waste this perfume like this? How could she not think of the poor? How many mouths could have been fed by the sale of the perfume? Clearly, she hadn't been listening to Jesus. Jesus hears them making these comments. And he promptly makes it clear that they haven't been hearing him. He says in verse 10, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Jesus has told his disciples again and again that he is going to die. Before they even got to Jerusalem, Jesus had told them this in Matthew 20. 
It says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So they knew this. They knew that, that he was going to die. And even earlier in his ministry, when, when some of the disciples of John the Baptist were criticizing Jesus' disciples for always feasting all the time rather than fasting, Jesus offers this defense on the basis that he's not always going to be with them. In Matthew 9, he says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. In that moment, the disciples gladly accepted the defense that Jesus was not always going to be with them. That they should celebrate while he was with them. But somewhere along the way, they forgot this. They forgot or or willingly ignored the fact that Jesus is going to die. And that, in fact, Jesus was standing at the center of everything they were doing. It seems as though they became consumed with the doing. The things that they were doing in their ministry with Jesus. They hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 19 to the young rich ruler when he says, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And they hear him say that, say, okay, go sell, give everything so you can give it to the poor and follow me. And in their minds, helping the poor becomes paramount. This just reveals that they've lost the point. To be sure, we should care for the poor. And when Jesus says that the poor is always going to be with you, he's alluding to God's word spoken to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 15 and 11, where he commands them to care for the poor. He says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed to your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And then even when we turn to the New Testament, we find the centurion Cornelius in Acts 10, 4. He's met by an angel, and uh, he asked the angel, What is it, Lord? And the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. So we can see that God loves it when we take care of the poor. That, in, in one way, this is an offering unto God. But we, we have to make sure that we don't confuse what is at the center of everything. Jesus did not come to set up a 501c3. He did not come to set up a global charity fund. Yes, his followers should serve the poor. But the poor are not the point. If they were, we might ask, what are we doing here? The Rotary Club, the Lions Club, any other club you could mention, all of them, they don't have worship services. If the poor was the point, sell the building. Sell the piano. Sell the projector. Sell the land. 
Just liquidate it all and give it to the poor. That's what we should do if the poor are the point. As the perfume drips down Jesus' forehead, leaving a trail of dollar signs, we see that the poor are not the point. Jesus is. He is worth being anointed with a year of your blood, sweat, and tears because He is the Word incarnate. He is God in the flesh. And He is worthy of all our honors. The poor do remain with us now. And He has ascended to heaven. And so we cannot pour literal oil on His head. But God help us if we think this means we don't devote time, money, and passion into pouring out our praise to Him. It's very easy for us to get cynical. It's very easy for us to get pragmatic. I'm not, I'm not sure how many of you are kind of tapped into the, the sphere of Christian news and happenings, but something happened this past Wednesday that's caused quite a stir. There was chapel held at Asbury University, a Christian university. And when that chapel service came to an end, the people did not leave. They kept on worshiping. They stayed. They wouldn't stop. And since Wednesday, they've been worshiping. And they're still worshiping today, as far as I know. It's being called the Asbury Revival. Now, when I heard this news, my gut response was, okay, but then what? You see, I've seen, you know, I've been in the church a long time, since I was a little kid. I've been in this church, I've been in a lot of different churches. I've seen what it means to be a two-faced Christian. To be passionate in worship and then lack all the character of Christ. And so it's very easy when you've seen those kind of things to become calloused. To think, okay, yeah, but then what? Does this actually mean anything? But God checked me. Because brothers and sisters, we need to understand that worship needs no justification. There is no need to make the case for worship. It's a basic, natural good. It's good like giving your son or daughter a kiss goodnight is good. It's good like buying your wife a flower from a roadside stand. It needs no defense. It explains itself. It's just good. It is just good to worship God. The psalmist tells us this. In Psalm 92, he says, It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. 
It is good to praise the Lord. So don't reason with Judas that your resources are better spent elsewhere on a Sunday morning than being gathered here to worship Him. Sometimes circumstances require an absence on occasion. But this shouldn't become the theme of our lives if we aren't incapacitated. We should be eager to worship because it is good. And Mary is our model here. As she has before, Mary is once again revealing her love for Jesus, a love which should consume us all. She loved Jesus no matter the cost. Her love is more pleasing to God than all the money in the world. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13.3, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We cannot love others rightly until we love God rightly. We cannot speak of justice either for the poor or for anyone else without giving God justice. He is worthy of our worship. He deserves our praise. It belongs to Him. This comes first. And in done right, it tows all the trains of car, train cars of righteousness behind it. Maybe you doubt this. Maybe in so many words you're saying, why didn't He give us penicillin? Well, Jesus tells us. He didn't give us penicillin because he did something better. He gave us his body. Mary is not only worshiping Jesus, she's anointing his body for burial. So when Jesus says that she will be remembered for all time wherever the gospel is preached, he's drawing a direct line between the gospel and His death on the cross. The Gospel is bigger than the cross, but it is nothing without the cross. I want you to remember that. The Gospel is bigger than the cross, but it is nothing without the cross. The Gospel is the good news that God's kingdom is coming. That the King has appeared, and His name is Jesus. The Jews are expecting war with the Romans, but they've set their eyes on the wrong foe. The real foe is death. The real foe is sin. The real foe is Satan. The threat of death is the power behind every tyrant. We've sold ourselves to death's tyranny because we are sinners at heart. We rebelled against God's rule. We separate ourselves from the giver of life. And so we are ruled by everything else. Satan is pleased to see us buried in our chains. The battle lines are not found on a field. They are formed on the human body. And we have all been overrun. 
But here Jesus stands. He hasn't fallen. But he will lay his body down. As the Apostle John heard him say in John 10, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus will lay down his life so that we who have fallen can be raised to new life with him. Guilt forgiven, sin broken, and death overcome. The perfume that revealed Mary's love for Christ fills our nostrils with a far greater aroma of his love for us when he says that this is for my burial. Because he is being buried for us. He's being buried for you. He's being buried for me. He's going to do what money could never buy. He's going to ransom our lives with his life. Let us pray. Dear Father, we confess that like the disciples, we can often miss the point or lose the point, Father. It's so easy to get consumed by the doing of the church, the ministries that we're involved in, the friendships and relationships that we try to form and small groups, Father, the seminars we go to, all of this. And all these things are good, Father. Helping the poor is good, Father, and we're called to do it. But Father, today we recognize that these things, as good as they are, are not the point. We recognize, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the point. That He is the center that you, O oh God, are what this is all about. And so, Father, we pray that we would not be like the disciples, being calloused and hard-hearted and pragmatic when it comes to worship, but that rather, Father, we would see that worship is what it's all about, that we would sing your praises and adore you, and celebrate what you have done and what you are going to do, Father. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us so that we would have these kinds of hearts. And Father, at the center of our praise is what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. That as great a gift of this as this perfume was that Mary offered, it didn't compare to the gift that Christ has offered us. His life, His body, so that we might be reclaimed for You. So that our chains might be broken. So that we might be freed, forgiven, and given 
resurrection life. Father, we thank you for this. We pray that you would set it before our eyes so that it would set us on the road to spreading that gospel all across the world and sharing along the way the story, this beautiful story of this woman who recognized Jesus for who he is. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.